Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Ollie Mann, and this is the Media Podcast, brought to you today by Mike Cold and Vocal Zone. On today's show, it's the biggest change to ITV's schedule since the 90s, or so says controller Kevin Ligo, but nightly show and News at 10 ratings are tumbling in its first week, should the channel hold its nerve. Also in the programme, The Beeb is to launch BBC Scotland, a new linear channel. Remember them? Netflix announces new production partners in the UK. YouTube is launching a live TV service. And we find out how to save cash as a freelance celebrity interviewer. Plus, we slide back the wall to reveal three teasers in our blind date-inspired media quiz. It's all to come on today's media podcast. And joining me in the plush confines of Dennis Publishing are the managing director of content company Something Else, Steve Ackerman, and following his very promising debut in our prediction special, the digital editor of theweek.co.uk, Holden Frith. Holden, you have qualified to a full episode. Thank you very much. Congratulations. And thank you for having us in your photocopy room. It turns out you can record a podcast anywhere. It certainly does. We've learned that in the last few weeks of recording The Week Unwrapped in this very room. Funny you should mention that, Holden. Uh, Yes, uh, producer Matt and myself and Holden and all the talented staff of theweek.co.uk record uh, a new weekly podcast called The Week Unwrapped in this very glamorous room. Um, Well, you you tell the listeners what the show is, Holden. So the idea of it is that we look for three stories each week which may not be getting the attention they deserve. So things that have just slipped below the headlines but will be having a real impact on the way we're living, not just now but in years to come. Because the thinking was, I don't know if you agree with this, Steve, that there are a few too many news podcasts just doing the three big stories of the week. I think it sounds a great concept and um, as as an avid reader of the week, anything that adds to that is... Excellent. I think you'll find Ollie Mann adds value to that. My <laughs> agent was quite clear about that. That's the next bit I was going to say. And explain why we're in the photocopy room, because Dennis Publishing does have very nice meeting rooms. It does, but it just turns out that the best acoustics come when you're surrounded by dead photocopiers. Does that, does that ring true with you, Steve? You've worked in radio a lot. I've got to tell you, this is very reminiscent for me of uh, about 25 years ago, one of my jobs was literally working in a room a very, very small photocopy room, which which doubled up as a voiceover booth where we had Mariella Frostrup coming in every week. Oh, so. Well, Mariella Frostrup <laughs> sounds good anywhere. Uh, and Steve, what are you up to at the moment? 
well, nice and busy. Couple of big commissions going on for Sky coming later this year. I'm not going to say anything more than that. And our usual mix of loads of stuff with various brands and broadcasters. Oh come on, you can give us a bit more than that. Oh, I don't, it, all I you've well, said is we're doing something for Sky. No, I'm not. I'm definitely not giving. Well, you know, we did a big. Uh, well, the past few years. Tell us we, about one of your, you know, less glamorous returning commissions. Then you do uh, Gardener's Question Time. That's exciting. We do do Gardener's Question Time. Actually, I can tell you that um, Kitchen Cabinet that we do on Radio oh, I Four. I love Kitchen okay, Cabinet. So I get the podcast. Excellent Big Kitchen fan. Cabinet with Jay Rayner. Uh, it will have even more programmes this year than it has had in previous years. So it really is now a, a pretty firm staple of the Saturday morning lineup on on uh, Radio 4. It is a great, great show. And I'm saying that, usually when I say that to a producer, I'm, I'm actually just trying to wangle my way on it. But actually with the kitchen cabinet, I have no role there. I'm not a chef. <laughs> I genuinely like the show. Right, let's take a look at the big TV story of the week. You can't have missed this, even if, like me, you chose to miss the show. Uh, and that is the first week of ITV's nightly show, their gamble on a late-night US-style chat show. Uh, they got 3.5 million viewers, Steve, on Monday at 10pm, but then by Tuesday that was cut in half. Well, look, I think like any new programme, first of all, you've got to give it a chance to settle in, and, uh, and obviously you are going to get an initial amount of audience who come, and it will find its own way. And obviously each week it's very dependent on who is the host for that week, because it's going to be changing each each week, so a different host obviously host the programme every night for a week. I'm really pleased to see a broadcaster giving this another stab because when you look at the creativity and fantastic work that comes out of the American nightly talk shows and how that's now obviously permeated onto online platforms and YouTube and so even in places like the UK, we're very conscious of some of that mm. some of that content. It's great to see UK broadcasters doing that because UK broadcasters are very talented creative people the challenge i think is the amount of resource that those u.s shows have in terms of writers and guest bookers compared to what potentially itv can afford and and that possibly showed through a little bit i think on on i mean i've seen a couple of the shows this week and it showed through a little bit in terms of in terms of what's been on the show but then you know people in telly are saying holden that actually compared to other comedy shows and other entertainment shows the budget that's gone into this is you know, far greater than would go into if Channel 4 or Channel 5 was doing a late night chat show. So so why, why is the quality not on screen? I don't know. And I'm slightly depressed to hear that so much money has been spent on it because it really didn't have that feeling. It just didn't feel polished. The pace was off. David Williams is sort of doing his David Williams-y stick, even though he, in looks, he seems to be sort of evolving into kind of Bob Monkhouse character, <laughs> oddly. I worry as well about this idea of the revolving host, because as, as you were saying, Steve, it, it does take time for people to gel, formats to gel, and it just feels that as soon as one person is going to get comfortable with it, they're then going to be throwing everything into the air again, and somebody else is going to have to kind of find their way through this new format. That's definitely a serious challenge, because uh, there is a real skill. There is a real skill in doing this, and it's no coincidence, I think, that a lot of the American hosts have come through the stand-up route where they're used to night after night being in front of a live audience and understanding the, the dynamic of that. Now, you know, actually, I think David Williams has been pretty good this week, but he clearly isn't a talk show host. But even giving it uh, seven weeks or eight weeks, however long they've initially commissioned it for, that's not really long enough either when you look at some of the legends of US late-night chat show hosts. I mean, Jay Leno... 
was a great comedian and a shit interviewer for about three years. It took him ages to learn that skill. Stephen Colbert has only just found his character after doing it for about seven years. I think it's the closest thing you get on TV, really, to a, to a radio show. Um, you know, when you look at the sort of big breakfast shows, you get exactly the same thing, where it can take six, nine months for a breakfast show host to really settle in to what they're, to what they're doing. And, and I don't, it'll be interesting to know whether ITV are doing this with a view to, you know, are these almost live auditions for trying to identify mm. someone who they could bring and bring through more in a permanent basis or is this the format of the show because if they're going to roll this out in a bigger way uh, trying to find let's say they end up doing it 20-30 weeks a year that's that's a lot of people you've got to find who can hold a show each week what's the bet it's going to be Stephen Bloody Mangan again well, seriously, bane of my life. He gets all my voiceover jobs. It's going to be Stephen Mangan, isn't it? Safe be, pair of hands. He'll be doing this before you know, Ollie. <laughs> the other problem with the format is that it feels so much like an imitation of the American equivalent. And, you know, starting with the monologue, going into chat, looking at a few funny pictures, it just feels that if they are going to invest in this kind of format, they could at least try something different. And then they wouldn't be compared with the much better, much slicker, much more experienced versions that we're used to seeing clips of on YouTube. And if you were Kevin Ligo, how long, which I'm sure you fantasise about regularly, uh, how long would you give this show? Do you think even if by the end of this initial run, if the ratings haven't improved, if the crits are still saying it's terrible, would you bring it back for a second series later to give it another shot? I think there's a long history of shows like this that often don't find their their foot until the second series, and especially as you tweak ideas and change the thinking around it. So, you know, I think with creative ideas, I'm all in favour of being patient. And, and, you know, you can't make a decision five days in, in terms of how successful it can be, but it may need some tweaks. And that's fine. That's part of the creative process. 10pm, though. I mean, you mentioned the American shows earlier. I don't think any of them have ever worked at 10pm, have they? No, but America has a very distinct culture of those late night shows and they all run 11, 12 o'clock at night. But why not run this at 11? Doesn't it make more sense that way? David Williams doing a chat show at 11, that feels glamorous and glossy, doesn't it? At 10, it just feels a bit cheap. I'm not sure I agree because I think at 10, when you when you look around, you know, what's on, what's on the schedules, it's a good fit. And, and obviously, ITV, presumably, are making a financial decision here to say, OK, for the size of audience we need to justify the spend on this show, where can we put it? And I would guess that probably by 11 o'clock, audiences are getting too thin on the ground. And as a consequence of this experiment, of course, the news at 10 has become the news at when, again, it's at 10.30 and now its audience has dropped to under a million. Uh, Holden Sky News has been plotting. Tell us about that. Yes, they're planning to start their own 10 o'clock news bulletin. So that will be moving into the slot vacated by ITV and competing against the BBC's 10 o'clock news, which moved into that slot when ITV vacated it last time. But, I mean, Sky News is a 24-hour news channel, so they've already had, they've always had a 10pm news bulletin anyway. They have had news being broadcast at 10pm. Yeah, they've the always idea- changed presenter, I think, at 10pm, haven't they? That's when Anna Botting comes on, isn't it? So they always have made an effort for that to be a bit... I suppose that the, the feeling is they're going to have more packaged items at this time and more of a review of the day rather than less rolling news. But yeah, given the relatively small number of people who I imagine are watching Sky News at that time, I don't think that this is going to be a huge shake-up for people outside the industry. But then I guess the paper preview is pretty popular, isn't it? And that's at 10.30, so it kind of makes sense for Sky to build into that, actually, from 10 as well. Well, I think there's a slight over-obsession, actually, in terms of, you know, when you look even at the combined audience that uh, ITN and BBC have in the 10 o'clock slot, I, th- I think we're only talking about, s- about 6 million people. So it's not huge numbers. And I think I'm right in saying that the Sky slot at, at that time gets about 100,000 viewers so you know I think it's easy for us to to get overly obsessed about uh, how important 
this is the main bulletin is still is still the BBC bulletin and actually I think ITV have probably made the right move in terms of seeing can they figure out something else out here in terms of making use of that 10 o'clock slot and no ad break between uh, the nightly show and the news at 10 either so they're obviously trying to build an inheritance there they're not just throwing it away yeah completely sensible I think if you can try and build build something up hold on to that audience because if you can get them in for the first news story you've, you've got the potential to obviously hold on to them longer okay let's continue talking about the big flagship bulletins in terms of the BBC uh, because they're less worried about their 10 and more worried about viewers north of the border. So much so, they've announced plans for Scotland's first linear BBC channel. Surprise, complete with a national bulletin of its own. Steve, this is only going to be available from 7pm each day, so presumably that's using BBC Three's digital spectrum. Uh, what resources are the Beeb throwing at this? From what I can see, there's not actually a huge budget when you look at the, the sort of budget that's spread across the year. It's roughly level with BBC Four, apparently. That's, that's right. So not a huge amount of money. And, and obviously the the sort of pressure for this, I, th- I think, really built out of the referendum. I remember there being a lot of comment at that time about the fact that the BBC didn't seem to be doing a lot of bespoke stuff for Scotland. But when you look at the political scenario, this seems to me a really sensible move that um, as uh, Scotland starts to create more and more of its own identity, the BBC should ensure there is a bespoke channel running there. But I mean, you say that there's not a huge budget, but I mean, you work primarily in radio. I know you're a multi-platform guy. The budgets that they're putting into this TV channel that probably won't be watched by many people apart from this one Scottish bulletin could fund not only all the overnight programming they've just cut from Radio 2, but all the local radio services that are threatened with the axe as well, and more besides. Do you know what? I, I'm going to sort of uh, slightly give a politician's answer. And you're comparing apples and pears there. And I mean, you can always look at different priorities and say, well, it should be this or it, or it should be that. Knowing how much decent TV costs, it's not a lot of money that they put aside. And, you know, frankly... Of course, they could potentially spend that on other things, but that debate will always go on within the BBC. And Holden, this is going to put pressure on the other regions, isn't it? Wales were quite happy with the amount they'd been given, but now they're getting pissy about the fact that Scotland's got more. We don't know what Northern Ireland's going to get, and inevitably you're going to get these people who who claim that uh, the BBC isn't England-centric, and so we need a BBC England as well. It does feel that this is is very much a, a political decision and something perhaps that the BBC can point out when they're accused of not doing enough for Scotland. But as you say, that then does open the the doors for other regions. Uh, what seems odd about the, the decision as well is, is making it a, a broadcast channel, having ditched BBC Three from the linear schedules, saying that online is the future for TV. This then seems like a little bit of a backward step. But I suppose it does mean that if Wales, if Yorkshire, if Northern Ireland want their own stations, then perhaps they can be fobbed off with an online station further down the line. I don't think we're going to see a a regional move like that happening. I think it's been quite obvious from the failure of London Live that there's, I don't think there's enough justification or appetite to start breaking down the UK into those to those sorts of regions. Well, except one of the few local TV networks that has been working is the one run by STV in Scotland across Glasgow. Uh, now the BBC is going to be competing with that, which isn't necessarily making them look that good. Well, the BBC does have a long history of setting up services once commercial operators have done the same. When you look at Asian Network, same same story. We had commercial Asian stations running pretty successfully, and then the BBC set up Asian Network. Five Live. Five Live's history was partly born out of the fact that Talk Radio was launching around that time and, and the BBC and, you know, the Iraq war had happened and the BBC suddenly said, oh, actually, we could do with the rolling news 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 network. So there is a there is a bit of a history of that. 
Okay, and just finally on this, do you think they made the right call? I mean, you said, yes, they, this is a good idea because of politically what's happening in Scotland. So something had to be done, but did it have to be this? The SNP were pressuring for a Scottish six o'clock news on BBC One, weren't they? And then said they were disappointed by this announcement of a whole new channel instead because it, it meant that on the channel most people are watching, BBC One at six o'clock to get their news, they're still going to be watching stories being dictated from the London point of view. But I think my understanding is the programming that's going to be created is not just news, is it? It's it's other form of other forms of programming as well. And I think this goes back to what we were saying about the ten o'clock news before. I think, especially from political circles, there can sometimes be an over obsession about news content when actually, for for a vast majority of the audience, that just isn't what they're consuming. And therefore, if the BBC can be creating content that can be relevant to Scottish audiences that isn't news content, I think that's to be applauded. But it is all being done because of the nine o'clock news bulletin, isn't it, Holden? This new Scottish channel, really. I think so, and it will be interesting to see whether the the sort of more cultural programmes actually get that much traction or whether people north of the border are actually interested in watching pretty much the same things that people south of the border. Or whether with that budget it does become like London Live and they just end up <laughs> repeating stuff that happens to be based in Scotland. You'll just, just get well, repeat some Rabsy Nesbitt and two doors down, won't it be? Uh, let's see. Uh, staying with Auntie, the corporation has announced it's going to be working with Netflix on two new co-productions, both dramas. Uh, one is about the fall of Troy and will be written by the same screenwriter as The Night Manager. Uh, the other is a second series of The Last Kingdom for BBC Two. Uh, Steve, Netflix outbid the BBC for The Crown and now they're working together. Do you think this is about learning to live together or keeping your enemies close? This is really about the new ecology and I think what you see right across the media landscape is one week people can be competing against each other and the next week they can be working very closely with each other. And certainly when you look at uh, where... Uh, TV drama is going and uh, and the high quality threshold that that really has been reached over the past few years where TV drama is 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 almost super or probably has superseded in some ways movies now in terms of its storytelling ability and the quality of what's being made that's really expensive to make and so I think we're going to see this more and more where we have co-productions I mean you know this has been going on for years anywhere where the BBC has done a co-production with an HBO or with an American broadcaster of some sort or or another because these things cost millions and millions of pounds and I suppose if you're a license fee payer you might say, well, if the BBC can create something that I can enjoy as a licence fee payer, but which can obviously be be enjoyed or sold elsewhere around the world to help recoup the cost, well, doesn't that make sense? So I think this is this is really sensible, though uh, the one thing with Netflix is uh, this is a big, big beast. As they start to dominate the scene more and more, you know, are they going to be coming to the BBC in five years to do co-productions, or is this just a way of them accelerating their progress? Well, as I understand it, Troy has been in production with the BBC for several years, so presumably they had the talent and the script already tied up. And do you think if that hadn't been the case... Netflix may just have swooped in and said, as they did with The Crown, we'll do it all ourselves. We don't need a partner. Yeah, well, as you said, I mean, obviously, that's exactly what happened with The Crown, wasn't it? Where, where from everything we've read, it, the BBC were really keen to be a, a production partner of that. And Netflix actually said, no, it, Here's it's Here's 100 fine. million quid. We'll yeah, do it we, ourselves. we can do this ourselves. And actually, we're going to make it 60 episodes. So, um, I mean, look, I, you know, I think I think we are going to see more, more and more of this happening with, with different broadcasters around around the world. Do you think it means that the BBC then becomes a sort of incubator for projects and you know kind of puts some seed money up, develops ideas and then tries to go to Netflix almost as a sort of venture capital arrangement where they'll then kind of flood in, bring the money and um, give it a kind of global 
footing. Well, this does reflect a bit when you think of what Tony Hall's announced in terms of compete or compare and the formation of BBC Studios. So in effect, BBC's in-house production arm becoming an external producer, being able to sell its ideas externally. This 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 kind of play, plays into that, which is ultimately the only two things that uh, that you need to ask in relation to compete or compare are what's in the best interests of the BBC licence fee payer. So can we provide the licence fee payer with the best ideas wherever they come from? And can we ensure that ideas that are created within the BBC produce the best value? So if a BBC commissioner doesn't want to commission it, can they be sold externally? And this is kind of a mishmash of both of those ideas, I think. It also, I suppose some people say, it sets a worrying precedent about the involvement of some of these American corporations in co-producing in terms of script and material and theme. Like, you know, every creative who's interviewed about these things, who works with Netflix and Amazon says, oh, it's brilliant, they're hands off, they don't get involved. But what if that changes in the future? What if they say, for whatever reason, you know, we don't want to do storylines about these kinds of characters or these kinds of issues or that storyline about benefits is too parochial and British. You know, does that then kill off some of the argument for what makes public service drama different to the kind of things that, that they produce? No, because I think the po- surely the point about where we are currently is we have a true marketplace for ideas. And so, it, you know, if that started happening with Netflix and there's no indication that it would... And then those ideas just surface somewhere else with a with a another broadcaster or platform. We're in a really, really healthy place for creativity at the moment because there is a genuine competition for the best ideas. And what that obviously means is people are raising their game in terms of what they're trying to produce and the ideas they're trying to bring to screen. It makes me feel that this is probably not Netflix's ideal solution and that they will actually want to move to a system where they are they have full control over everything. They've got the money to do it. The arrangement with the BBC may just be a matter of convenience for them and perhaps a, a way of getting access to stories and and, and programmes that they currently don't. Incidentally, will they continue having the money to do it? I do wonder about this. My Netflix subscription is still five ninety nine a month, I think, and it seems to me that this whole strategy is underpinned by more and more people in more and more countries taking up the service as they roll it out. But at some point, they're going to hit market saturation and they will have rolled it out everywhere. So then how have they got more money to fund stuff since they don't take advertising? I think they're still a long way off from that point, though. And, um, and obviously, a lot of the money has come from investment coming into the... In, into the company at the moment as they as they try and build. So I, I don't think that's an issue they're going to face in the near future. This is- Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. I'm with Steve Ackerman and Holden Frith. And I've just done that thing where you tell the audience who's on the show, even though this is a podcast. Steve, I want your opinion on this. You seem like the right person to ask. Is that necessary in podcasting? I never used to do it because I used to think if you download a podcast, you know who's on the show. You've been listening to the whole thing. But the recap I find actually in a long show is quite useful because you're thinking, who are these amazing guests again? Well, I'm not sure about the amazing bit, but I think, yeah, you should be telling the audience throughout what's going on. Though obviously you're right, compared to radio where people are tuning in and out, it's it's obviously different. If you're listening to this podcast, uh, potentially you've paused it and come back to it at a different time. But you know, it never does any harm to remind the audience who, who are the idiots on the other end of the microphone. OK, what do you think, Holden? Do you think radio conventions should be applied in podcasting? Or do you think I shouldn't even introduce you at all and people should just have to hunt through the metadata? I'm always happy to be reminded who I am. So. <laughs> Right. Some news in brief now. The Sun has leapfrogged The Guardian in the National Readership Survey to become the second most read news brand in the UK, uh, pipped still by the Daily Mail. Uh, The survey combines both print circulation and online traffic to give a sense of each newspaper's overall domestic reach. Uh, The Mirror came in third. The Guardian is now slipping to fourth place. Uh, Holden, the sun dropped its paywall, so that's why it has great leaps forward. Obviously, it's always done very well in print, um, but now they can combine print and online in this survey. But the mirror is doing well as well. Why? I think really this is the the natural order of things being restored, the, you know, the sort of stories that the sun covers would tend to have a bigger audience than the sort of stories that the Guardian would, would cover. And we've, you know, we've seen tabloid audiences have always been bigger in print than um, than broadsheet audiences and online that pattern seems to be continuing. The real question is whether the Sun can convert these much larger digital audiences into the kind of revenue that will sustain them as print advertising falls away. And Steve, the Guardian slipping down the list, the Press Gazette said that was due to a drop in mobile views. What's going on there? I suppose I'm I'm a little bit surprised because one one would think with what's going on with world news at the moment, mm. an institution like the Guardian would be benefiting from that. You know, we've 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 read quite a lot the way the New York Times has had a big bounce mm. uh, out of being denounced by the president many times and has seen its digital subscriptions uh, increase very very significantly. And particularly w- since the Independent doesn't even have print numbers to add into the mix on mm. this survey anymore at all. So Guardian's really the obvious sort of standard bearer there, isn't it? Yeah, online figures can be quite choppy, um, so they'll they'll rise very quickly one month and drop away the next it's um often has to do with facebook or google changing their algorithms that can have quite a big effect on how many people get through to the site it's slightly odd that the guardian seems to have been affected by this alone and um there were no particularly huge news stories in September that would have led to a big rise there that I can think of. If it had been June and you were talking about the EU referendum, then that might, that might have been the case. Sticking with the press, the Evening Standard has begun releasing one edition a day. I'm angry about this, Steve. I always used to look for the West End final label. I, I, <laughs> and I thought that was my little secret trick that not every Londoner knew about. They used to slip a late edition into their print run with breaking news from that morning. Uh, but now they've made this move to cut that which coincides with plans to cut sub-editors' hours to half a day, halving their pay in the process. 
Playing devil's advocate, though, Holden, uh, the late edition is not relevant in the world of rapidly developing online news. Discuss. I think that's true, and I think you've probably got to the the heart there of, of what's happening here. So, you know, the Evening Standard has had a bit of a revival, really, in recent years since it um, went free and boosted its circulation, um, became more appealing to advertisers. But um, it seems you know, that's probably not a long-term model for the next decade, couple of decades. It may just be a, a short-term way of wringing a little bit more out of the um, the print model while they, they still can. But at a time when people can get up-to-the-minute news on their phone, why would you want to look at something that's been printed out several hours before? See, I... I- really do think the point of an evening paper is that you're getting that day's news otherwise what is their usp apart from the fact that they're free and so is metro well you are getting that day's news and you're getting it later than the than the morning papers have printed it but marginally it, it seems to me bizarre that that it's taken them this long to get to the point where they're not uh you know where they're taking taking the moves that they are for exactly what what you've described it seems very outdated to me the idea that you're you're rushing out onto the streets another another edition you know that just isn't the way the world works anymore and they clearly, you know, the economics are, are changing all the time. But post Brexit, the fall in the pound has meant the cost of paper has risen. Um, at the same time, print advertising has taken quite the sharp downturn in the last six months. So they're clearly just trying to cut costs here. Is the brand problematic online, though? I mean, I realise I'm putting this question to a person who runs a daily news site, which is called The Week. <laughs> but, you know, it's called The Evening Standard. Online, uh, that's a bit harder, isn't it, to get traction when you're doing morning news? I think that's the sort of issue that people forget about very quickly. It's not um, b- before coming to the week and running a, a daily website. I worked at the Sunday Times and tried to run a daily website there. So I, I have form. <laughs> You've got a niche. Um, and it's, you know, particularly when people are finding a lot of their news, either through search or through social media, mm. um, the brand is not foremost in a lot of people's minds. That's one of the reasons that some of the established brands are, are struggling. But it does mean that if you're... If you are covering news well and um, with immediacy, you are likely to be able to get that in front of people, whatever your name. Okay. And Steve, if you follow your logic through, then if you're the sun or the mirror, you don't do your late edition anymore. You just print at 10 p.m. the night before. Look, the future for all these brands is that they've got to build up the online proposition. So, you know, in terms of those editions, I think it's a little bit different because you're obviously running through through the night. You actually do have a greater flexibility because less people are obviously consuming what was originally originally printed and, and more developments can can happen in terms of in the daytime and particularly in the afternoon it just seems nonsensical and i think the sort of struggle that the struggle that i see for the evening standard in terms of online is is the same thing that many of the newspaper brands have, which is what does it stand for online? It has a, a raison d'etre in terms of a print edition, which is you know I'm, you know you're rushing home and you print up you pick up something something to look at on your way home. Online, it doesn't have that because it's not the only news source that that you can go to. And frankly, also the the website, particularly the mobile version, is appalling in terms of how slowly it loads and and you know very very clunky, very very poor. So if it's really going to have a presence online, it's got to really figure out what is its its reason and clearly the London angle needs to play up to a much much stronger element than it currently does that I seems think- to me sorry that seems to me to be the obvious thing the London thing because Holden there's still I mean you know we're one of the biggest cities in the world we've got the biggest concentration of, of media probably of any city in the world and yet a lot of our London brands Time Out is a global website LBC is attempting to be a British facing proposition aren't about the city at all 
I think that actually may be one of the problems facing the Evening Standard is that a lot of London news becomes national news. So when they cover a story, they are actually competing with the Times, the Guardian, the Telegraph. Maybe they try to go down the the more local route, but the Guardian tried that a few years ago with hiring a lot of reporters to cover um, cities in, in great detail, and they abandoned that because there just wasn't the advertising money behind it. Let's move on to radio and wave goodbye to classic radio brands, unique, above the title, and smooth operations, because their parent company, Seven Digital, has rebranded them all in their image and have begun trading this week under the Seven Digital name. Steve, do you understand why they're doing this? I would assume that part of this is potentially to do with compete or compare. Um, So we talked about this a bit earlier in relation to TV. It's affecting the radio world as well. So up until now, 20% of radio, BBC radio output has been eligible for competition from outside providers. That's going up to 60% over the next few years. And so... Lots of companies are positioning themselves ready to to take full, full advantage and maybe they are looking at this and thinking, well, okay, we've got a number of different brands that create programs across a number of different networks. Far better we're known for one name than three different names. I don't think it's any anything particularly significant. Rebrands happen all the time for various different you know, uh, commercial entities. So but these are historic names in radio, aren't they? they? Are, in British commercial radio. They are, and especially Unique, because Unique was actually, uh, if not the first, then certainly one of the first production radio production companies to be set up so unique has, has a special place and smooth does as well it's always done some fantastic work and and particularly coming out of the you know the sort of no- northwest they are significant brands but again you always have to say in terms of the listener in terms of the license fee payer does it mean much it doesn't really it's just another name at the end of the show that says this show was produced by and you run a proper indie as it were but are we going to see the rise do you think of the super indie in radio and multi-platform like we've seen in telly i certainly think we're going to see some new entrants coming in because of the amount of uh, content that's going out and and yes i you know i do think we're going to see a big increase because it's a natural thing that if, that if the marketplace is expanding very significantly and obviously outside of the bbc there's huge audio opportunities going on with people like amazon and obviously the podcasting world as well i'm not sure we'll get to super indie status but i do think you'll you'll see some consolidation going on yeah and sticking with radio, should local commercial stations be tied to their service licences? That's the question being asked in a new consultation launched by the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. The outline argues that regulations are burdensome for stations looking to experiment with, say, music outside the original agreement when they got their licence. Uh, Holden, do you imagine there's much outcry over these proposals? I can't imagine that people are going to be marching through the streets about them. It it feels really as if the kind of people who are looking for sort of very distinctive radio are probably going to be gravitating towards their local BBC um, stations. And I I wonder whether there is really a huge need to um, to regulate commercial stations in this way. Why were these regulations put in place, Steve? It was was basically so that not every station sounds like heart, wasn't it? Well, I think they were originally put in place. You know, you've got to go back... 20, 25 years at a time when bandwidth was a scarcity and that obviously produced the value of commercial stations. That's why they got sold for huge amounts and part of that was, okay, if you're going to be given something that, that's rare and has value, you need to commit to, 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 you know, to what your offer is within the marketplace. We're now in a world of Apple, Spotify, on-demand music um, and I think actually this is, this is a long overdue 
move i i think absolutely commercial radio stations at a time when it, it it's pretty difficult to to make serious money out of a commercial radio station uh should have the flexibility absolutely to identify the music they think will best serve the audience they're trying to reach and if and if it doesn't work they should be allowed to change and try and try some try something different yeah i mean they're not stupid they're going to offer what their listeners want to hear because that's what they're selling advertising against but what is the uh, alternative case here what's the equivalent of local news or public service broadcasting, whatever the traditional thing is people might be upset about when regulations change. What, what might listeners miss out on? Well, I mean, really, this is not about uh, will things like news be reduced? Because I think if you if you read what's being proposed by the government, they're saying that there would still be some yeah. uh, some some elements of uh, restriction around around that. It's really about the flexibility around around the music content. And, and most of the licenses will currently say, you know, you are providing a pop music station or a jazz station. And, and if you want to move from being a jazz station to a soul station, you need to then go back and get a change in your license. And it's quite a cumbersome process. Uh, if a newspaper suddenly decides it wants to go from broadsheet to tabloid or it wants to run more sports stories than it did last week. It just does it overnight. And I'm not quite sure why radio's ever really been forced into these restrictions. As I said, you know, in the current world that we're in, as opposed to the world we were in uh, when these licenses first started being given out 25 years ago. Any obvious candidates for commercial radio stations that you think might sort of change overnight? Well, I think you've got to look at where that middle ground is, which is obviously highly competed over in terms of smooth magic, heart. You know, there seems to me a lot more space for some differentiation. And when you look at what absolutely has done with some of its sub brands which have done really really well you know absolute 80s absolute 90s and the same with kiss with things like kistry um that i think would suggest that some of those stations are going to need to vacate the middle ground and identify a much stronger niche that that they can really own and commercialize yeah, it's easy to see global isn't it combining some of its ideas smooth classic for example yeah, yeah. I, I, I just made that up, by the way, Ashley. It's very but if you good, want to give me a royalty. It's very good. Richard <laughs> Parkle, thank you for that. Uh, right. YouTube are to launch a live TV service in the United States. You did not hear me wrong. They're launching a telly channel. They were supposed to end TV. Uh, Holden, what is this? Why are they doing this? So this is another example of what's called the skinny bundle, which is... Um, It's what I order at Starbucks. It's a way of getting a small number of premium services for a reduced fee. There's a few similar services available in the US. Um, Hulu, I think, is one of them. I suppose the nearest equivalent here we have is something like uh, Now TV, which is a um, sort of sub-Sky subscription. But YouTube, you know, if you were to describe to someone who didn't know what their brand was what YouTube is, it's like the opposite of a TV channel, isn't it? Isn't their whole point that it's, it's everywhere apart from TV? Well, it's trying to own viewing, isn't it? And when I read this, I thought that is a sort of another stab in the heart for cable TV in America, which historically was a very dominant force and over the past few years has been radically reduced. And, you know, the fact that uh, most TVs that are sold now are smart TVs, and I know on my TV, I can, at one button I've got YouTube, and in fact only the other night I was watching, thanks to my wife, I was watching the uh, ABC uh, red carpet show from the Oscars oh, yeah. on YouTube. I had to sit through that too. Yeah, so uh, so 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 already we are seeing a pattern of behaviour where people are gravitating away from little five-minute videos, which youtube historically was to much longer viewing spells and once you do that you say okay you may as well make you may as well make the whole channel available yes and there have been youtube apps on smart tvs for a few years now but the idea is still of a linear channel i just wonder who that would appeal to it's not your youtube viewer is it so are they aiming at older people 
I think it is a, a bit hard to see, um, particularly in the UK. We have Freeview, which is actually a pretty good skinny bundle if you want to look at it in that way. You know, it gives people uh, access to a pretty wide range of um, digital services. And also sports rights here are very expensive and very complicated. And that's been one of the big drivers in the US of um, getting people to subscribe to, um, to these sorts of packages. And YouTube will be showing various US sporting events. Okay, and before we get to the media quiz, consider that a tease, uh, a feel-good and finally story. After Press Gazette discovered that as many as a third of freelance celebrity press interviewers could be on benefits, someone has a simple solution for journalists. A kind of life hack, if you will. Holden, can you explain to us what this is? This is a essentially a Facebook group which is meant to connect freelance reporters with celebrity PRs without having to pay to get access to um, databases of media contacts, can interview celebrities and then sell their work. I mean, as an organisation, Steve, does something else pay to be on those kinds of directories, things like Media Eye or Gorkana or whatever? Not really, no. Um, I think most uh, broadcast entities would not expect to do that because obviously if you're if you're a platform or an outlet, so for instance, we make the uh, Como de Mayo film review, you know, we obviously don't expect to be paying to get access to to movie stars or the databases that will tell us when they're around uh, we it works the other way around which is obviously the film companies want us to know because they want the stars to be featured and what about you holden would you consider it dennis publishing subscribing to a thing like this no well <laughs> that's fairly clear uh, if you do fancy it though it is called the celebrity interview club it's a closed group on facebook i don't know what the entry criteria is let us know uh, there is now just time for our media quiz This week, it's entitled Blind Date Syndicate. With news that Channel 5 is bringing the once popular dating format back to our screens, we here at the Media Podcast thought it would be a Laura Laura fun to try and do a little matchmaking of our own. I'm going to describe an international territory desperately seeking entertainment. You tell me the country and which show or shows would make a hot date. Buzz in with your name, so Holden, you'll say... Holden. And Steve, you'll say... Martin. The winner is Scylla Black, the loser, Paddy McGuinness. Here we go. Contestant number one. I am a 202-year-old country with some previous anger management issues, but that's all behind me now. Holden. Holden. Is this Germany? It is Germany. Uh, Let me finish my contestant statement. Uh, I'm looking for someone with a bit of imagination. What's the story? Germany has bought the rights to SSGB. Very good, that um, is right. The show that imagines their previous outburst of anger management was more successful than (laughs) it actually ended up. I wasn't surprised by that idea, Steve, that Germany would be interested in a a drama about the Nazis and actually particularly one that they'd never be able to actually commission. Well, actually, the Germans are one of the countries who are who are best at talking amongst themselves about Nazi history than many other countries around Europe. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure this show will actually probably go down pretty well. All right, here's contestant number two. I am a nation of over one billion looking for someone to help entertain and inspire our many only children. Oh, Steve. Steve. This is, now I can't remember the name, but it, it basically see... Country first. Oh, China, China, <laughs> yes, yeah. China, it China. It begins with a C. Right, China. Uh, <laughs> and the so, story. So the story is that um, a network or a, a an outlet in China is going to broadcast, I think, all of CBBC. Um, and 
That's right. That's the story. Here. It's it's CBBS actually, but yeah, Chinese VOD platform has bought over three hundred hours of CBBS to show to their over twenty million paying subscribers. Uh, this was at the BBC Worldwide Showcase hosted earlier this month in Liverpool. That is a great thing, isn't it? Because CBBS is brilliant content for young kids, isn't it? I think better than what the Americans produce, and and, and that's a market we weren't tapping into before. Well, my my children are a bit too old now, but but they all grew up on CBBS and CBBC, and and, I, and genuinely, I think those are fantastic children's channels and, and something the BBC should be really, really proud of. And I wonder if this is an opportunity for a bit of soft diplomacy as well, because a lot of children's TV um, shows have a sort of element of, you know, a healthy disrespect for authority and creativity, individualism. Yes, yeah. all of these things. I mean, you know, I think it's a great thing. It's actually the entire point of uh, the BBC having a global outlook originally, isn't it? So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Iggle Piggle might be the best diplomatic ambassador we have. Right. Finally, let's hear from a couple that got together on an earlier edition of Blind Date Syndicate. It's contestant number three. I thought she was interested in me because of my good sense of humour and how good I was with the kids, but behind my back she was stealing my best lines and passing them off as my own. Holden. Holden. I can't remember the country. Okay. It's, um, you, you might be a point yeah. ahead, this oh, could oh, be a tie. Oh, I'm, no, I'm ready to jump in. Okay. <laughs> it's, go on, the Holden. The story is, um, it's, a, uh, it's an animation series called um, The Amazing World of Gumball. Yes, very and, good. Cartoon um, Network series, yeah. They were being plagiarised by rival producers and they, they kind of exposed them mid-show. That's right. You can probably, from the story, guess well, what country China, it was. They were yeah. from China, yes, yeah. again. Uh, yeah, Chinese domestic show Miracle Stars has been outed as a frame-by-frame copy of Cartoon Network's The Amazing World of Gumball. And how did they expose this breach of copyright? Didn't they reflect back some of the things that they'd done that they'd done in the pirated version? They reflected back in the in the main show, or was it the other way around? They did things in the. You're no, obviously too busy watching Anthony and Teal. <laughs> you haven't been watching the Amazing World of Gumball. Uh, but uh, what they did is they created an episode where they met their Chinese counterparts. So it's a, a bit like that joke in The Simpsons where Family Guy walk in, but better. Uh, well, but anyway, it means it's a tie because you split the points there. So oh. tiebreak, surely? T- not on blind days. Oh, just, how disappointing! <laughs> maybe, maybe you two can go off to Fernando's, uh, <laughs> thus wrapping our show for today. My thanks to Steve Ackerman and Holden Frith. Catch up with our previous episodes, including our bonus episode on influencer marketing, and get new episodes as soon as they're released by subscribing on our website, themediapodcast.com. Thank you so much to everyone who has donated to the show since we did our uh, pledge drive earlier this year dedications coming in the next episode if you haven't given us any money yet and yet you've got this far into the show why not uh, join those who have dug deep into their pockets and keep us on the air by going to themediapodcast.com slash donate and keep me in vocal zone i've been ollie Mann, the producer matt hill and the media podcast is a ppm production until next time bye bye 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.